Hello and welcome to the Art Podcast. My name's Tom Cox and on today's episode I speak with London-based Vietnamese artist KV Duong. We speak about his family's experience in the aftermath of the Vietnam War and his own journey moving across three continents to eventually settle in London. KV shares how his experience as a tennis player has helped to frame the mindset needed to navigate competitive funding applications and how his vision for the long term have brought him not one but two museum exhibitions. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did making it. KV, welcome. Hello, Tom. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Very good, good. to see you. Yeah, fantastic nice to, to see be your back face. here. It's been a long, long time. Yeah. So KV and I met in, I think it was 2016. Yeah, Tribe. It was Tribe, that yes. was it. Yeah, because I knew it was we'd met somewhere, but then I remember coming to your exhibition um, at the Streatham Space Project. When was that? Was that 2016? That was 2018. 2018. Ah, yes. Okay, yeah. I remember seeing your work there and then I was like, I want to work with this guy. And then... And but then... actually, we exhibited at the Focus London December 2016 in Menier Gallery. Ah, that was the first one. Yes. So it was after Tribe. Yes, <laughs> yeah, just definitely. shortly after. I I'm think, getting baby I think brain. I snooped you when you were doing the Strand. Cool. So yeah, okay. So, so that therefore me and KV met when I was doing the rounds and doing my pop-ups around London. So, I mean, it's been about seven years we've known each other now. That's a long time. I know. It's, uh, <laughs> I think when you met me, it was right at the start of my artistic journey, I would say. Yeah, it's come a hell of a distance. So, your work covers a lot of topics. War, migration, sexual identity. These are all connected within the tapestry of your personal history. It would be hard to describe your work without first exploring the life that led you to where you are today. So I propose that we go back to the start and you bring us from the beginning of your journey up to the present day and explain how you got to where you are now. I guess I can start by saying that I'm ethnically Chinese born in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was after the war. My parents lived through the war. Uh, my mom was shot on the hand in her teenage year mm. uh, while she was fleeing, carrying her sister. And my dad was drafted to the war, but thankfully he was dismissed uh, because he has glaucoma. So it's a blessing in disguise. Okay. And so anyways... Because you, you were born in Ho Chi Minh. I was born in Ho Chi Minh City, yeah. 1980, five years after the war. Mm -hmm. uh, and I keep bringing this back. Uh, it hasn't really... I mean, I didn't live through the war. My mm -hmm. family survived, knock on wood. Mm -hmm. My... Both my parents' side, my dad and mother's side, they were boat people. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of people don't know this, but 400,000 people made it safely mm -hmm. through the boat journey. Mm -hmm. But an additional 400 people didn't. Perished, yeah. Perished. And, and so you say boat people. Explain that to listeners who don't, who don't understand. Or it was mostly heard. from the southern Vietnamese people because they lost. Mm -hmm. And... Um, other people within the political system as well, they wanted to either if you had business um, that was taken away from the government, you felt betrayed and you wanted to leave. But the majority of the people who left are from the south side uh, mm -hmm. because we lost to the north side. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm saying this as an adult now and mm -hmm. going back many times, I don't really feel the difference between the north and south. It's been nearly mm. 50 years and it's pretty much one country. Yeah. But back in the late 70s, early 80s, people who left were from the south. Mm. And leaving by boat means that you find some money, you pull with people or you know connections. Yep. And then it's not physically 
getting your boat to North America or somewhere. You're basically floating around in international water and hoping the international community picks you up. So mostly wow. Americans, uh, Singapore, Germans, etc. So mm -hmm. then you're shipped to a refugee camp. Mm -hmm. So it's either Singapore. The main one was actually Badong Island right off the coast of Malaysia, which hosted 40,000 people at the maximum capacity. Yeah. And yeah, so it's the luck of the draw. But a lot of time people perish because of the condition. Mm. But also there were a lot of Thai pirates who come and rape the women or they can kill you. Mm. And it's just not once. If you're unlucky, it's like multiple times that you're invaded by these pirates yeah so anyways not not to make the whole wow distance <laughs> that's intense you know yeah. it's quite i i yeah. thankfully did not live through that experience but yeah. my dad's side did yeah and then we were uh, sponsored to canada so okay. in 1987 the rest of my family moved to canada okay um and so at what age were you then when you when you arrived in canada six and a half six and a half and i spoke Vietnamese and Cantonese yeah but then we integrated into a Chinese community mm -hmm. so progressively I lost my Vietnamese I can only understand it up to a six-year-old's conversation okay but I'm changing that this year I am learning it on my own with YouTube channels and yeah. the few Vietnamese people that I know in London when I see them now I ask them to speak with me in Vietnamese okay so let's see yeah. how it goes yeah yeah but anyways uh I bring up the topic of the war because it had such a profound effect on the course of my family history mm -hmm. the fact that i'm speaking to you here in a canadian accent and yeah. i guess me moving to london was a self-choice because the rest of my family is still in canada yeah yeah and so when you got to canada i mean okay so you're six and a half you're in canada um were you at this point starting to express your creativity your artisticness or was that something that came a bit later you know we lived we were low-income family my yeah. parents worked in the factory mm -hmm. uh, and what kind of factory did they work in oh various but they ended up working in a bubblegum packing factory for mm -hmm. the, the the last 20 years or so of their working life wow so you can imagine cold winter Canadian winters uh, I didn't have my own room until I was 24 so actually my sister was 29 so that was really worse way more harder on her yeah so you can see as a kid you're in this household with so many people and mm. it was cold and we didn't have much space and they didn't have much to do in mm -hmm. the winter time so you know I took a printing box mm -hmm. uh, because that's what we used because there's three of us going to school we had one table and then the box was my writing tool. Yeah. So I'm sitting cross foot doing my homework. And then when you're young, I didn't really have that much homework. So I started drawing because mm. uh, that was what I wanted to do or it was a way to pass time. Mm. But actually, it was the most economical means of expressing your creativity. And I didn't think I'd ever be an artist. Yeah. Uh, but then that was when I discovered or realized that it really took me to another place when mm. we're, there's it's so crowded at home mm. and there's not much to do when you're drawing you're just zoning out mm -hmm. the way that we feel now as artists um particularly during COVID, it's so, it was such a blessing to have that gift and creativity of doing that because it just brings you to another 
part of mm-hmm. your life or experience that it doesn't rely so much on the external world. Mm, yeah, and I then I think grade three class, uh, mm-hmm. the teacher gave us these uh, number uh, A four sheets with numbers, mm. like a big six or a big seven, and they told you to color it. So I just colored it, and then I I drew like the, these figures with hands and caps and foot and stuff, and mm. and then she at the end of the lesson she just uh, you know shown showed some pieces out so oh this was really good and that was really good and then i'm just thinking they're oblivious mm-hmm. uh and then she's like oh but this one you know this one is something special and then she she showed my work i'm like oh oh i i, I suppose that's special yeah, i don't so know is it maybe i, I have no this. idea and then yeah uh, looking back i think that was the first moment where i realized that i was different from other kids or mm. at least my interests were different from other kids mm. so you have on top of your art career a career in structural engineering i do and uh, i've just counted it's been freaking 18 years yeah working as a structural engineer and plus six years of ba and ma in canada in canada yeah so was there pressure from your family to definitely ignore the uh, creative route and go down the sensible let's make some money sort of route i mean when you speak with a lot of immigrant family not just yeah. the asian uh, family but uh, of all races mm. of course if your parents sacrificed all this time and effort to give you the opportunity of education mm. the safe means is to do a professional career mm. so both my siblings uh, we we all went to university thankfully back then university is affordable and you can get government loans so we went to um state school uh and it, it didn't matter so as long as you excelled in your marks in your high school then you went to the university of toronto which is where i went to get educated and mm. you started off on even keel so i studied structural engineering i wanted to study maybe animation because that was the closest thing and yeah. even after my bachelor's degree i wanted to do maybe a master's in architecture because that was 2003 and sars happened and that really affected the working uh, economy in Hong Kong and Toronto. So I didn't get a job right away because I couldn't. Explain that a little bit more to me. So SARS happened. How did that affect the economy at that time um, relating to the work you were doing? I think a lot of jobs were paused and mm. they weren't sure of the economic impact of the investments. It's really mm. short term, like the construction company. And because we work closely with the construction company, uh, everything that happens in the market we see right away and it Mm. was just a riskier time for people to bring on graduates yeah so then i went on to do a master's in structural engineering which was another two years and no regrets um Mm. i I don't think one ever regrets having more education because you developed more as a person Mm -hmm. uh, in the way that i speak the way that i write the way that i deal with people and Mm. find opportunities in yeah. the art world just thinking the really boring side of doing your admin mm-hmm. doing your finances yeah. doing your instagram posts speaking with people writing art grants application it is the really boring but necess- necessary parts of art that i think not a lot of people understand unless you're an artist curator slash gallerist people who are doing all the, the behind the scenes work mm, 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 definitely um and so okay so you had your um, migration over to Canada, you started to explore this creativity. Um, you were 
nudged in a in a more uh, sort of a stable career path. Um, at what point then did you decide to make the move to the UK? I moved to the UK in June 2010 through the uh, working holiday visa through Canada and the UK. So yeah. anyone, I don't know if that exists anymore, but basically if you're under 30, the government gives yeah. you a two-year working visa. It doesn't matter what you do. Yeah. And I did that because as a queer person, I didn't feel like I needed to live my, the rest of my life in Canada because I felt like there were fewer roots to tie me down. Yeah. Uh, I, I can understand for my siblings because their whole network and family were there and they may have met their high school sweethearts or I'm just saying people who come from a, a city. Your Their default is just to stay there. And Toronto is a very comfortable city to live in, much mm. more comfortable than London because it's more accessible and the, the amenities are, are more with, within reach. But as a creative person and as a queer person, I want to uh, to explore the European cafe culture on the cobblestones. And that was hmm. what my dream was um, when I graduated mm -hmm. from university uh, under after my actually both the BA and MA. Everyone in North America, our first trip overseas is the backpacking European trip. Yeah. And that's what I did. And I fell in love with the culture and I thought, well, why don't I just explore this for two years? Mm -hmm. And then now it's 12 years after. Yeah. <laughs> so you loved it a lot. And and was there any reason why uh, London, as opposed to any other European countries, was it just the language barrier or? It was definitely the language barrier. London yeah. was not my first choice, but mm. actually after I moved here within a day, it, it was, that was it. I mm. fell in love immediately. But initially it was the language barrier of getting a visa to another english-speaking English country. country yeah yeah so okay there's a little bit of a journey of how you got got to the uk and then engaged i suppose in your career as a structural engineer at what point did you start to re-explore your creativity around your work i imagine that if i was in a brand new city i'd probably just be working and getting involved with things and just exploring to begin with so it was that the case and at what point did it start to kick in i think when someone moves to London as a young person. Yeah. There are so many distractions, good mm. and bad, fun things. And I was, I came as a single person. Mm -hmm. I only came out uh, of the clause two years prior. So this was like a new, okay, yeah. a new candy shop for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, so, how, so how old were you at this point? 30. 30, okay. So, I'm not yeah. a spring chicken anymore, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, okay, so, so you're just like 30 doing, doing and you're in London, was the always city. there, yeah. just doing it for fun, and I yeah. uh, applied for a few competitions here and there, and January 2016, I applied for the Derwent Art Prize. I've applied for other things previously, and then mm. I got an email in June 2016 to say, Dear KV, you have been shortlisted for the Derwent Art Prize, and I thought, oh my god, what the hell? Mm. This was actually really embarrassing, because it comes from Parker Harris, uh, th who runs the competition and other prizes. And this was the, the really ignorant part of me. I replied back to say, Dear Parker. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. But anyways, embarrassing part aside, uh, I was going to have my first shot at a exhibiting artist. And I think having been shortlisted for a prize means that your work has some sort of a stamp of approval. Yeah. So... For the three months leading up to that, I 
made a website, business card, Instagram, Facebook, got that all tidied up. And by mm -hmm. the time the War Derwent Art Prize came along, I became an exhibiting artist. And it was a really mm -hmm. proud moment in my life. And shortly after that, um, Tribe 2016, and then we did the Meunier Gallery Winter Exhibition together. So that was the start of the journey. I think mm -hmm. I just needed someone to show the door ajar and then I ran right through it. Uh, you know, going back, I remember having your first business card is like so exciting. You know, when you're making your own, you spent like hours trying to like think of like the right design and getting your name on it. You're like, what information should I put on here? You know, and then you like, you go to an exhibition, like, yeah, I'm an artist, take my card. I remember that sort of the simple joys of setting up like the, the early, the early parts of the career. It's a um, proud moment. We are all is, entrepreneurs. Yeah. We are all small business owners. Well, yeah. you are a small business mm -hmm. owner, but for all artists, we're entrepreneurs and we have to work all of the avenues. So having a business card, mm. it's it's a validation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's also like it's a it's a stamp um, that you've given yourself. I, I, in my past, I remember it took me ages before I said I'm an artist. I used to say I'm studying art or, uh, you know, I've, I've made this painting, but I, it took me so long to like get into the shoes of just saying, yeah, I'm an artist. Now, now I've been saying it for bloody ages, so <laughs> I don't think about it anymore. But and at the start, I it's a big step. go through art school. So you yeah. can imagine me saying, am I an artist? And my friends would say, well, you've exhibited. You're yeah. an exhibiting artist. So yeah. I would say now, well, even the first year or so, I'd be, oh, I'm a structural engineer and uh, I'm an artist as well. Yeah. Now I say that I'm an artist and a structural engineer. Yeah. And I say that with conviction. For a long time, I was worried of saying that I work as a structural engineer and mm -hmm. I do this part time. But then, you know, fuck it. Yeah. It's during COVID. And then you realize that someone to be a full time artist is quite rare where you have a studio yeah. assistant in a studio. Yeah. A lot of people still have to hustle on the side. Absolutely. And when I say that, yeah, it's yeah. like teaching art or doing other means. Yeah. So my side job is structural engineering four days a week. Yeah, uh, yeah. But because I'm in the... Uh, uh, also, like, can I just say like that that in itself is a huge achievement, you know, to be able to be doing all the exhibitions and creating all the artworks you're doing on top of a job as a structural engineer is very impressive thank <laughs> it you it shows not only organizational skills but to, to balance that creativity and, and 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 not burn out as well um how do you find uh, balancing the two careers i went down to four day week in august 2020 and that's been the best decision that mm. i've made because it's given me so much more time to think and to do networking see exhibitions instead of cramming everything onto the weekend mm. i have one extra day to do that and it mm. was a much better life work-life balance mm. i say that with um i guess i'm in a position of privilege mm. because uh, i've had 18 years working as a structural engineer my partner's also a professional so we can live in a semi-comfortable environment and not have to worry about selling art to make a living, which yeah. I think for me at the moment really helps to take off that pressure and to do art that I really want to do and be challenged with and to say something and not be so driven by the commercial means or affected by that. So I have a clear headspace. Mm -hmm. We're both really hardworking and driven to be successful in our careers. Mm -hmm. For me, it's four day structural engineering 
but it's three other full days doing art and then the morning the evening sometimes lunchtime mm -hmm. now that we're working from home hope no one from work is listening to me <laughs> <laughs> but you know with yeah. the working from home flexible hours you get your work done and that's the most important thing mm -hmm. and then the rest of the time you can do however you arrange your day mm -hmm. yeah definitely absolutely but i uh, think also being really organized with your time yeah. and you, you can tell by the way that i'm speaking it's quite quick because this yeah. is the way that i think and speak <laughs> and walk it, it's like you know you have to get stuff kind done. of full on i always yeah. have a list of things to do we don't have a television yeah i think i had netflix for three months in 2021 when mm -hmm. it was the hard lockdown and then um yeah it's Deleted that it. was it so every mm. moment that i have i try to make the most use of so how would you describe now now we know your 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 personal history how does that influence the work that you make I think I'm an ideas person. So when yeah. I come up with a concept, mm -hmm. I try to make it. And whatever medium or media that comes out, that's what happens. Yeah. I think it's a pro and a con that I, I consider myself a multidisciplinary artist. But it's really confusing when you're trying to explore all these avenues. Yeah. So I would describe myself as a, an abstract painter. Yeah. But towards the, the last two years, I've add i've tried to add more photo real realism collage and transfer images and more landscape and figurative elements in order to tell my story mm -hmm. i know that's not always the right way to do it and i think of yeah. mark bradford or of course like jackson pollock mm -hmm. or mark rothko they are pure abstract artists with a lot to say mm. i think with the situation of living through COVID and everyone looking through Instagram, it's really hard to engage with people with abstract work. And I say that for my narrative, because I have a lot to say about my history and how it's affected my life mm. and also my family's life. Mm. So it is abstracted in nature with elements of realism. Mm -hmm. I um, think my ideas stem from drawings and paintings mm -hmm. and the everyday activity is doing a 2D work on paper or canvas because that's the the most convenient, the, the mm -hmm. most accessible to mm -hmm. sell some works or even to exhibit. Mm -hmm. But progressively I'm doing installations and installations are much more tricky because you need the venue and you need some sort of funding mm. uh, because in my status I can't actually sell an installation the performance art came by accident actually I went to the Venice Biennale in 2017 in the summer and I saw this performance artist uh, and he tagged with a photographer Tibor Hajaz he was in his late 30s Hungarian he, he passed away quite young but he was saying something about the political suppression during his period so Hungary was still part of the former Soviet Union and it was this series of images of him tied up with paint splattered it was just a small wall hmm. maybe one by one meter and it just took me by surprise and really changed the course of my outlook mm. what was the name of the artist tibor hajaz hajaz okay i'll i'll find that for the and i'll put that in the show notes for everyone else 
And I came back and I cleared the sofa of mm. our living room. I had my friend come over. There was a piece of big Fabiano paper at the back of the wall. And I did a series of photographs with me in paint, just like goofing around, not goofing around, but like just trying out the narratives. And mm. then I presented- So you were exploring using your body as the brush. Yes. So you were, what was, what paints were you using? Uh, acrylic paint, acrylic. Uh, wa children's yeah. washable acrylic paint. Okay, yeah, sensible <laughs> choice. And then, so you stripped off and you started using your body and using it to imprint onto the paper. Yeah, just as a, an expression of freedom. I think mm. at this point, it was more about the queer expression mm -hmm. of freedom where you think of people well, uh, maybe not. It's just the, the, someone going through life of the growing pains of putting paint on your body as a wall, putting up mm. walls mm. to guard yourself and then smearing the paint off onto the wall or canvas again mm. of like revealing your true self mm. and then continually doing that process of painting yourself and stripping the paint again. Mm. I didn't really know what the outcome would be. And these are part of the experimental parts that we all do. Mm -hmm. And uh, some are bad, some are good. And this one was amazing because mm. it was such a liberating experience. What came out of this was a photography series, mm -hmm. uh, nine photographs on, on a one page sheet. And I pitched it to the curator of the concept space. Uh, the space no longer exists, but it was this huge white cube space in Bermondsey. It's mm. ridiculous. It, mm. it was almost like for an artist of my stature at that time, having only exhibited for one year, it's like, I want to exhibit here. And I don't think he paid much attention to me until one day I showed up and I showed him this photograph. He's like, let's talk. Mm. And um, I think the next week he said, yeah, can I pitch this for your winter exhibition coming up? This was mm -hmm. 2017. He's like, yeah, uh, perform it on the opening night. And I said, sorry, excuse me, what? Mm -hmm. He's like, yeah, perform it. Yeah. It's like, oh, right. Let me have a think because this came as a total shock. Yeah. So and you, of at course, this point, you've only done it in your house and now you're being asked to do it in front of a crowd. Yeah. And it wasn't even performance. I mean, mm -hmm. I it was like a studio shot of doing things. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I thought oh. within like two hours of thinking, <laughs> going home, it's like, I've got to do this. I mean, yeah, someone's. Yeah, yeah. That's so risk. funny. Did you even think that he was going to, like, I don't know, like, was there a certain, oh yeah, like, well, of course he, like, at some point someone was going to ask me to do this if this is what I was showing them. Actually, no, I you thought this was thought, just a, like, do you want to just see these as photographs? Yeah, I thought yeah. this was just a photograph piece that you frame and exhibit mm. and he said, just perform it. And, yeah. you know, I have no background in dance. Mm -hmm. I have no, well, quote unquote, formal background in art. Mm-hmm. But then the more you do this, the more you realize that the education, the formal education of art, it is still very important. Mm. And I do still have plans to go back to do an MA, mm -hmm. but more as a person going through formal education in whatever field, for my case is engineering, you really just develop yourself as a person of a way of thinking, even if it's not art in engineering is to solve problems. Mm. And having the confidence in your professional life to deliver projects and speak to people. I think the painting part, I actually attribute to playing sports. 
in yeah. high school and also as an adult. Yeah, you're a big tennis player. I am a big tennis fan yeah. and player. And mm -hmm. I think at some point you have to learn to control your nerves mm -hmm. and to control the butterflies. Of course, all these performances and during a tennis match as well, you still have the butterflies, but it's ways of controlling it. So mm. I think I remember taking the bus to the opening um, and I was shaking. <laughs> I was freaking out. And this was December and I was going to be in my underwear and the place was quite <laughs> cold. So I was at the back yeah. uh, doing push-ups and jumping jacks because I was cold. And then actually, once you get your blood flowing, the 10-minute yeah. debut performance, it just came off so naturally. And I mm. don't know if that's always been inside of me. Mm -hmm. I was so, I wouldn't say shy, I was very outgoing until I hit puberty and then I became really reclusive because I was in the closet. Mm. And then once I came out, I think within the span of two years, I just went 180 and found myself again to be mm. really comfortable in my own skin. Mm -hmm. So this was just a calling that I never knew, uh, but it's opened up the door and opened up this entire stem of the practice which um has then informed a lot of the paintings that i do as well mm. interesting and then there's a, a, of well, course there... sculptural works <laughs> yeah and uh well, let's stick on the performance for now because i remember also you did i watched your performance at the streatham space project where you i believe you had so you you were tied to a rope and you were being dragged in one direction and you were pulling your body in the other direction and the, the marks were going all over this giant canvas on the floor. And then you, well, one that had quite a big spotlight was on Brewer Street. So um, that, what, explain that one. It was, it was on Brewer Street, bang in the middle of Soho, and you're there with your kit off in the window. <laughs> that, was, that was crazy. That was... Um july 2019 during pride weekend pride yeah. week and yeah. it's with um artic who's an art consultant that's mm -hmm. an art consultancy company who i work with and uh they said kb we're doing this launch of career frontiers would you like to perform and i said yes mm. tell me when and where of course with all these performances they're site specific so with the one that you mentioned in streatham yeah we had a theater venue and it was on the floor so i had to come up with creative things to do mm. in this context it was one pane of glass at the raymond review bar and it was so crazy because i'd come to site i i know what to do and we knew where the audience was standing yeah and then that morning off they decided to replace the pipe on that street so when i got there at 5 p.m i'm like oh my god what the hell has just happened so the viewing platform yeah. outside has just shrunken by half but right. actually so there's... There was a, now there was a lot of workmen as well in the audience well just <laughs> <laughs> no actually this was after hours so they okay. weren't there but that would have been funny wouldn't it be <laughs> uh, but i mean they're in soho during pride week so they mm -hmm. know what to expect yeah, and actually yeah. it was um great because yeah. you had this audience packed on the inside mm. packed on the, on the maybe three, right three row you. of yeah. people out in the pavement and then on the other side of the street you had like another three or four rows so when you look out it's just packed with people and then there's this tension mm. of this groundwork yeah uh, it was crazy it was so hot it was so rowdy and i did it and it was just <laughs> 
like the best part I would say about doing performance art is you get the immediate reaction from the audience mm -hmm. while you're doing it. So you can never recreate these performances in a studio setting because nice. as the performer, you're getting so much energy mm -hmm. from the crowd as well. Yeah. Could you imagine when you first, uh, you know, when you were in the closet, when you were younger, when you were a young teenager, could you have ever imagined that one day you'd be <laughs> in Soho, in the middle of London, in the middle of Pride Week, in such a like public like nudity, you know, like in front of a huge crowd of men? I mean, absolutely not, because, you know, when I was in my teenage years, yeah. I saw video recordings of myself playing volleyball or tennis mm. or even hearing yourself on the voicemail. Mm. And you think, why do have people not discovered that I'm gay? Because I'm totally gay. You mean <laughs> you're, you're seeing this queer person on video. It's like, am I the only one? watching this it's obvious yeah. and you know a lot of people regardless of their sexuality they're still sometimes uncomfortable with hearing themselves or seeing photographs of themselves mm -hmm. and videos actually the worst uh, but then you know when that part of that coming out journey for me it's fuck it this is who i am mm. uh, take me as you are the the best motto and quote that i've learned through the years is be true to yourself yep. and be who you are because the people who matter don't care and the people who care don't matter boom boom i love that that's in brilliant. life that's and brilliant. in art yeah. in the ways mm. that i explore art mm. it's like i'm gonna do things that not necessarily everyone likes or not mm. to their taste yeah. but it is true to myself and i'm going to find the right audience for it yeah definitely definitely yeah i really appreciate that about your work um and I can see it you definitely chose the path of I want to tell a story and I'm going to find the different mediums and the different things that are going to help me tell that story. So, I mean, I remember back in 2016, I was really enjoying the sort of like landscapes you were doing. I believe there was little figures in them, tiny figures kind of like migrating across coming back or sort of come snowy back well. landscapes with little golden bits. They look fantastic. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how you've, gone into this uh, performance and installation and kind of let all of these different uh, mediums sort of speak the voice and the, and the ideas that you have. So something I want to talk about as well is the fact that you, um, I would say more than most, have a lot of determination and a lot of resilience as an artist. I know that you are always uh, applying, um, researching, uh, doing, uh, you've, you've um, achieved a few times getting funding from the Arts Council and last year you had a exhibition at the Migration Museum. Could you tell us a little bit about your sort of philosophy in terms of sort of getting yourself in front of all these people um, and also how that led to you getting the, it was a funding for the, for the Migration Museum, so how you got the funding uh, for that and what was the result? I think the subjects that I'm trying to explore in my art I understand is a niche market so I'm less of the commercially accessible artist and I say that for the people that I'm privy to of course when you go to Art Basel and a uh, freeze and documenta I see the type of art that I am doing on that commercial accessible scale and also museum mm. so the struggle that I find at the moment is that I'm trying to create art for a museum that 
to an audience that I'm not yet privy to. And I say that, mm. but then I, I've, I had the Migration Museum exhibition last year and I'm doing a collaboration exhibition opening in April this year at the Museum of the Home. Mm. So it's almost like a means to an end. If you're painting things that are sellable, it's easier to do the art fair route and generating mm. income that way. For the type of art that I'm trying to do, it lends itself more to arts council funding mm -hmm. and let's say a venue of the Migration Museum and the Museum of the Home and also applying for residencies and research grants because the topics that I'm trying to explore lend myself more to this realm mm. of the ecosystem of the art world. The Migration Museum came from an open call in late December 2021. And it was a short window open call that the Migration Museum had funding with the Lewisham Borough of Culture last year. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I received the email, I was so happy because this is, wow, this is someone saying, KV, please exhibit your work at a museum context. It technically is a solo exhibition. It's the mm. three meter storefront of the museum, mm. which is a bit quirky but mm -hmm. you get so much foot traffic because that is the face of the museum and i thank them so much for that mm. opportunity that really opened up the door to say with conviction that yes my name is kb duong and i have had an exhibition at the migration museum in mm. london england mm. so, was <laughs> was so i was gonna say like with, uh, in the kind of uh, process um so that was that was that one was an open call um, I suppose because the museum is funded by the Arts Council, it was therefore already the funding was there, and then you were the one that was selected. You de like whenever there's an opportunity, you you've grabbed it by the horns over the last few years. I know that there was a video view at the RA of the summer exhibition uh, on their website, and then there was uh, what else was it? There was the uh, landscape artist of the year. So I, I know you're constantly putting yourself out there, putting feelers out, applying to different prizes and different awards. Uh, you've now got quite an extensive list on your on your CV, your artist CV. So that process also involves a lot of rejection. Um, and especially when you're starting out and you don't have that, that list on your CV. I think once you start getting a few more on there, it, it almost opens the door and it becomes easier. But that, that first bit's quite a, quite a hurdle. How did you manage your expectations and, you know, where do you think you get that resilience from that, that keeps you pushing to, to apply for more? I think there's a lot of trial and error mm. and the more you do something, the better you get at it. So I think, well, no, I believe that grant writing is a skill that one can learn. Mm. The, the first few times I got rejected, I still get rejected, uh, but I've been with a mentor. His name is Matt Roberts over the last three and a half, four years. Mm -hmm. And he's really helped to tidy up some of the grant writing. And then the more you do it, the more you read successful grants. It's just because the margin of success is so small that even mm. a tweak in a few words can make a difference. And of course, the more you do art, the better your CV becomes and then the easier it is for someone to take you on board. Mm. It's so, like they're looking for that. Um, pre-existing validation before yes. they take the gamble of, yes. of of taking you on board. So obviously, when you don't have those validations, it's a bigger gamble. Basically. And it's a chicken and yeah. egg. You know, yeah. where do you start? But sometimes you, when you do it enough, yeah. you get a lucky break. Yeah, I don't know when or where. Yeah, I, I just think that it's like dating. You know, mm. when you're single, you go on many dates until you find the right person. Yeah, uh, and <laughs> if you don't go on dates, well, you're 
you're not gonna be, you're gonna have less chance of meeting yes, that person yes exactly yeah, yeah, like yeah. no one's gonna come to say hey tom marry me because i yeah. you know i just saw you one day but it may <laughs> happen <laughs> yeah anyway not not to diverge in autumn 2021 yeah. um hua zhong and i who's a french vietnamese artist that so, I, sorry say their name again hua zhong okay. she's a uh, french vietnamese yeah uh, graduate from the rca ma paintings in 2021 mm-hmm uh, I got in touch with her over Instagram because we felt that our works really coincided with each other. Mm-hmm. And this was the luck of the draw, the Jared one-to-one funding that we got in November. It was £2,000, which then helped us to pay to rent out the Canning Gallery and the 150 plastic stools that we did. So we did an immersive mm-hmm. installation at the Canning Gallery for a month. In and this was the Jared prize what was the name of the prize Jerwood one-to-one fund one-to-one fund okay and that really i mean at the end of the day we paid ourselves 50 pounds each mm-hmm. which is absurd and a lot of yeah. people cry about that but it's yeah. an investment that we did but yeah, yeah. through that platform we got a lot of exposure including mm-hmm. people from the museum of the home this is how we're bringing part two of this exhibition no place like home a vietnamese exhibition part two to the museum of the home opening mm. mid-April and we're inviting three other Vietnamese diaspora artists to join us in this collaboration. Very cool. We may invite more depending on mm. our funding. Yeah. Um, but um, through, so th- through you said this, this is a different museum that you're doing this with. What's this one called? The this Museum is the of the Museum Home? Museum of the Home, formerly Where, the Jeffrey Museum right at Hoxton Station. Hoxton Station. Yes. Very right cool. Right in the smack of central east london we are very excited about this yeah very cool and we got the jerwood new work fund um which i said it was very lucky because we got our foot to the door with the jared one-to-one funding and this was by invitation only to about 250 creatives who Mm. were open who were eligible to apply for this and we applied to it last autumn it took a long time to write the grant application Mm. and we got it we got close to ten thousand pounds which sounds a lot but when you divide it to the marketing Mm -hmm. pa Mm -hmm. all the material costs yeah this is the motto that we're able to pay ourselves as curators and artists and also the three artists that we're bringing on board Mm -hmm. we're able to pay them a nominal amount Mm -hmm. to carry out this exhibition I mean, it goes to show, I mean, like, you know, this is where the the kind of massive benefit comes from having this other career. It allows you to be able to say, you know, like not have to stretch that fund to be like, I need to live off it. You know, it's such a tough gig to be doing that as a full time artist, especially until you've got your foot through the door. Like you said, we paid each other 50 pounds each and we invested the rest into the exhibition. So you've got, you know, it's great that you've got this um you know other source of income that allows you to invest fully into the ideas when you do get these grants and really push those ideas i think that's fantastic but can we talk a little bit about the you said you've got a guy you've got a mentor so how did you go about the process of getting a mentor and, and who what's the name of your mentor the so let me start with the i've been with several mentors right from the beginning of my career yeah uh, what per- was it about you that wanted to sit, search out a mentor specifically? I think it's like being a tennis player. Yeah. When you have coaching, you're going to be a much better player yep. faster. Mm-hmm. And this is my own self-education other than going 
to do an MA, which is yeah. still at the back of my mind to do. Yeah. Of course, being a full-time work person as well, it's hard to do that. Mm-hmm. So I hired um, someone called Bryony Marshall, who teaches at the Arts Academy uh, for, I think, two years. And she was a, f- a former physicist or chemist. I think she's a former chemist turned sculptor. So mm-hmm. we aligned in our views of thinking and she mm-hmm. got me, she tidied up a lot of my professional practice in the ways that I write emails and um, business cards, websites, etc. Mm. And then I, but as like tennis players, you, you learn from the player, from the coach, and then you move on to another coach because it's, there's nothing wrong with the person. You're, you've just, you feel like you've learned enough from them yeah. and you're reaching a plateau and you want another voice. Yeah. Then I spent two to three years with, um, an artist named Reese Jones, who also teaches the BA and MA program at City and Guild. Mm-hmm. And this was through another friend referral who did her M- her BA there a few years ago. So how did you get in touch? Basically, you go to an opening to say, hey, Reese, I'm an artist and I'm looking for a mentor. Here is my work. Mm-hmm. Do you think we could be a good fit? Mm-hmm. Sometimes they said yes. Sometimes they say no. <laughs> Thankfully, yeah. Reese said no. We got along and I learned a lot from him. Total mm. respect to all of the mentors that I've been with. Mm. And then over COVID, I started working with Carrie Hand, who is exceptional. And I worked with her for about two years. And the only reason why I stopped is she changed her business motto uh, to do less one-on-one and more group mentoring. Right. And you needed that personal tailored yes yes so uh then i joined a online mentorship uh group mentorship in the u.s last summer for a few months Uh, and now i'm sort of without a formal mentor but it's been okay Mm -hmm. there are plans in the way i don't think i absolutely need it at the moment because there's a momentum going but of course um you have trusted voices in your peer group Mm -hmm. that you bounce ideas off and then uh, I, a mentor named Matt Roberts, mm. he deals m- with more of the business side of grant writing and opportunities and where to apply and who to reach out to and less of like, what should I do with this painting? How do I bring that forward? So it's a different mm. aspect of the mentorship. And I've been with him since autumn 2019. And he's really helped me explore opportunities, writing grants and just strategizing mm. because a lot of these opportunities of exhibitions and grants, you still have to do research and you have to be at the right place at the right time. And when I say mm-hmm. that, you know, it's not, it's sometimes serendipity like the YBAs 20 years ago, but let, let's face it, there, there are so many artists now. So you get noticed, you show up, you show up strategically mm. to places and you get noticed and you follow up and you say hello. Mm. Thankfully, I don't have a problem with saying hello to people yep. and, and doing cold emails uh, and Instagram DMs, although, mm-hmm. you know, 80% of them are ignored, but that's okay as well. That's part of the reality <laughs> oh, the of journey. being an artist. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Very cool, man. Um, well, I can see that it's definitely working for you. And the fact that, you know, li- like anything, like with the competitions, you get one, you get it on the CV, and then you get a bunch more. Now you've had your exhibition at a museum in London, and now you're getting the more grants and you're, you're, you're honing that process and you're starting to deal with new museums. So you've got this show coming up in April at the Museum of the Home. That's very cool. And I look forward to coming. Um, right, I ask everyone 
a couple of questions at the end of each interview. You know, I thought about this question and there are so many favorite living just one artists because <laughs> I'm I'm such a sponge and I'm yeah. learning as I go along the way. For example, I went to the Tate in December and there the two female artists, Maria put so oh my god, I can't is this the sculptor the, the the sculptor and the clay artist mm, magdalena yeah. and maria just exceptional artists yeah and there are so many peers that i work with and look up to mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who are influential as well but i would say the person who has impacted me the most right now is the aster gates okay he is a black artist from chicago and he has created this amazing community in the south side of Chicago through his residency and just a, a gathering point for the community to yeah. uh, gather and exhibit and exchange ideas. And what really put him on the map was documented, I think, 10 years ago, where he had an exchange with ideas of the black community in Germany and in the U.S. And through this exposure, he's really honed on his voice of what it is to be a black American artist living in our current time. And I take a lot of inspiration of how he deals with that topic, how he has, he how he speaks and articulates his thoughts as an artist and as a person situated in the contemporary society. For him, it's the black community. He's taken the tar roofing material that his dad used as his career to mm. create in his work he's taken japanese influence in his pottery he's used so many historical contexts in his work he i think is also a sponge and using all of this world experiences and mm -hmm. filtering into his art and i see myself as an artist but also as a community person to make the southeast Asian voice, a stronger voice, creating opportunities for myself, but also for my peers, like mm -hmm. this museum exhibition. It was really important for my collaborator and I to invite or apply for the funding to invite other people to come. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to extend this even further with workshops and performances in part of the program. So I see myself as a creative, but as a person living in the society, and I'm trying to make the best out of my voice and for the community mm, fantastic okay so if someone wants to find you where should they go what's your instagram i'm going there first <laughs> uh kv duong art kv d-u-o-n-g art yeah uh website is kvduong.com all right kv it's been amazing talking to you i really look forward to coming and checking out your show in april at the museum of the home I'll put a link in the show notes so everyone can find you. Uh, and if they want to visit that and learn more about you, they can do so there. Thanks for having me, Tom. All right. Cheers, dude. Bye.